Welcome to a special edition of Run This World. I'm your host, Nicole DeBoom. You're about to listen to an episode in the 10-part Touched by Suicide series. Trigger warning, this episode may include discussions about suicide, mental illness, substance abuse, and self-harm. If these topics are sensitive to you, proceed with caution. It may also contain strong language and is intended for an adult audience. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or are concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting themselves, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. The hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Please be sure to share this podcast with anyone who needs to hear it right now. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Touched by Suicide, a podcast series inspired by Steve Tarpinian, who died by suicide in 2015. I'm your narrator, Michael Lavon. In this series, we share perspectives from people who have been touched by suicide in different ways. Our goal is to raise awareness and reduce the stigma surrounding suicide and mental health issues. And to always remember, you're not alone. Today we hear the perspective of a suicide attempt survivor. His name is Adam Sue. Be prepared to take a journey through the mind of someone who has attempted to take his own life, but failed. We are so grateful he is still here with us today because his path to happiness and health is so incredibly powerful. And his mission in life has been to help others move out of the darkness and into their own versions of love and light. If you know someone who is suffering and want to help them, Adam's advice is this. Acknowledge their pain, remind them that they matter, and don't try to fix them. To be truly happy, Adam feels that we should treat everyone like they are living their last day of their lives. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. Now, let's hear from Adam and Nicole. I am here today with the amazing Adam Sud. Thank you for chatting with me, Adam. Uh, it's my pleasure. Appreciate it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm honored to do this. Oh my gosh. We tried to connect like five years ago. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> Yeah. Did I drop the I know, ball? And, no, I think we both did. You know, I don't even remember what I was doing five years ago. Um, gosh, I think I was probably just moving. Yeah, I was just moving from Los Angeles back to Austin five years ago. So, you know, there's a whole lot going on. Well, yeah. here's my memory. You could only yeah. do the interview like on a Saturday at 5 p.m. or something. And I was like, yeah, because like I was the busiest man in the world. No, I was doing clinical work. And so I was in a clinic Monday through Friday, like, you know, full time. So that's why it's like, when I got home from doing work in the clinic, I didn't want to do anything. I was like, I can't. So. No, I, I totally get it. You know, and yeah. I mean, you've been on such an interesting path full of very extreme highs and lows. And yeah. today it'll be fun to dissect that path. I don't know if fun's the right word, but oh, sure. important, important to dissect and share your story because this, this podcast, especially today is all about helping other people, especially those who are suffering. So yeah. thank you. 
You're welcome. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's dive right in then. Let's talk about your childhood. Let's let's kind of start at the beginning. Let's talk about a young yeah. Adam. Okay. So, all right. So, you know, when I when I tell my story, this is where I start, anyways. So, this is a good place to start. You know, I grew up in Texas. Uh, I was born in 1982. All right, and um, I'm seventh, sixth, or seventh generation Houston Texan. Right, so I'm like serious. I was like serious Texas. And I was also raised Jewish. So, you know, you think about the diet, it would be like burgers and barbecue and bagels and blinzes, right? It's like a standard American diet with cowboy boots and some chutzpah. And I love that. Love it. Neither, neither of which are health focused, <laughs> health focused diets uh, of any kind. And, you know, I ate that diet because it's the diet that my parents ate. It's the diet that their parents ate. It's the diet that my friends ate. Now, obviously you have, as you get closer, like the 1980s, you have more, the introduction of more and more junk foods into it, but essentially it's still very much meat focused, dairy focused kind of diet. And, um, you know, interestingly, I had an amazing childhood when I think back on it overall. Uh, I was part of that generation of kids that played outside every day. And my dad taught me how to play every sport. He was coach of my baseball team and my basketball, little league baseball team, little league basketball team, and would play backyard football with all the, the kids in the neighborhood. And my mom was very much a, a, a person that would, you know, inspire my imagination and my creativity. And she, she nurtured it. And I used to ride my bike with my friends to middle school every day and we'd ride home and play until, you know, till the street lights came on, that kind of thing. You know, when the street lights come on, that's when you go home. And uh, I absolutely loved so much of my childhood. And yet I had this unbelievable um, uh, difficulty with my relationship to myself. It, um, my dad, um, you know, with all the best intentions in the world, was very, very is it was a very hypercritical person at that time. And you know, if you if you didn't know him and if you didn't know what he had been through, you wouldn't understand. You just think he was a kind of a a critical um, uh, person. And um, but if you know that his dad had passed away from cancer. When my dad was 25, his father passed away from colon cancer. And I know that was very traumatic for him. And, you know, he watched his mom survive a heart attack and beat cancer. And so he has this, you know, I can I can only assume the kind of worry that he would have when he watches people that he loves engaging in behaviors that could, over the course of time, threaten their health and threaten their ability to be present in his life, you know, and so from, from age nine, 10, if I was eating junk food, even if it was food in the house, you know, I would get criticized. And I can remember being about 10 years old and my, my summer in Texas running into my parents' room with my shirt off because I'd just been in the pool. And my parents were, they stopped me and they, you know, they asked me, they, they were like stunned that I had love handles. They're like, why do you have love handles? <laughs> I don't know. 10. 10, exactly. <laughs> I don't know what they are. I don't know what caused them. I didn't even know it was something I needed to be aware of. And that was the thing. Because up until that moment, 
for the most part, I was a very accepting person of myself, both physically and emotionally. I, without worry, without care, I was very proud of of myself um, to go shirtless all all day long in the summer in Texas. And but I was all of a sudden it was like it was taken away from me because I was presented with the idea that there were now and actually always had been conditions upon which I was allowed to accept myself and be acceptable to other people. And that was a scary thing because if there's one condition, well, what's to say there aren't more and why do I not know what they are? And how, who's going to tell me, how am I going to find this out? Can I, and, uh, uh, yeah. Can I ask, um, you talk about that as part of your self acceptance of yourself and your body, but did you also feel that maybe it meant they didn't love you as much? Well, you know, the thing is, is I think, you, you know, when you're that, that old, when you're nine years old, when you're that young, sorry, when you're that young, um, your family, your parents are your whole world, right? And so not so much worrying if they love you, but if they don't accept you, then you're unacceptable to the world. And that's a scary thing because it's one thing to love someone, but if, if you're in full acceptance of them, well, you'll do anything for them, you know? And so it's this fear that like, oh, am I not, am I not enough? Am I, what, what does that mean? What, what does that cost me, right? In terms of like safety, in terms of like security as a person and, and as a child, like, am I not safe here? Am I not secure here? Am I not, you know, do I have to hide my stomach? Do I have to hide myself? Like, what do I, am I not allowed to eat in front of them? I don't know. Like, what do I do? How do I become safe to be around them without, so what, yeah. without worrying of being pointed, something being pointed out, go, oh, that, that's not okay. Oh, that about is not okay. And that's really what kind of got imprinted was this hypervigilance to be hyper aware of how people responded to me and look at these visual cues as an indication of whether I was or wasn't acceptable. Even if it was not, even if it wasn't even a thing the other person was doing, just pick up on the slightest and most subtle of, of facial expressions, the slightest and most subtle gestures, and then immediately, you know, attribute that to, is that about me? Is that about me? I'm so scared. I'm so scared. Is that about me? And, you know, it, it caused me to be very afraid to behave in any way that's related to behaviors that created the situation. So food. So the logical explanation for me was, well, I can't stop eating, but I can hide it. You know, if, if junk food is something that my parents won't find acceptable of me to do, I just won't let them know I'm doing it. And so I began, I, I started to, to engage in closet eating behavior at a very young age. I mean, like running, I would, before school, I would grab the extra cinnamon rolls and I would run into the, in the, off the kitchen, there was a dining room. And I'd go right around the corner, all the lights would be off. And I'd just like curl up in a ball in the corner and eat it as fast as I could. Or I'd run into my bedroom and turn off the lights and do the same thing. And it was, it was, I was so afraid and I was so ashamed that one, I didn't know, I didn't know why it was a problem. I didn't know why I couldn't stop doing this thing. I didn't know that it was okay not to know how to stop doing this thing. 
and I didn't know if, 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 if things were going to get worse. And it was, I was just so, there's this constant fear of being caught because, oh my goodness, they've already said I'm not acceptable. Now that I know that this isn't acceptable, what if they see me continuing to do it? You know, then there's the like, you know, they're going to see me for what I really am. This scared, broken, unacceptable person who's not worthy of being around them. And so at about the same time, funny, interestingly enough, about the same time I got taken to a doctor and diagnosed with ADHD, this was a thing that was happening all across the country at that time, early 90s. All the kids were getting diagnosed with ADHD. Ritalin was the new thing. Sure enough. But, you know, when I already had this limiting belief about myself, now I have a doctor who's literally going to give my parents his opinion about what's wrong with me and delivers this message of, oh, he has ADHD. It's essentially a story that I'm hearing this doctor say, like, it's something else about him that doesn't work right. That, you know, we really don't, we really, we really wish he didn't have. And, you know, it's not a good thing. We don't want people knowing this is not at all what the doctor said. This is what I'm hearing. And, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give him this pill and it's called Ritalin. And, you know, just as long as he takes this pill, no one's ever going to know. And, you know, it, for me at that age, it was like a, uh, it was <laughs> for lack of a better pun, like a prescription for seeing the world as uh an enemy an adversary and my body as an adversary and my mind as an adversary and all of these things were in competition with each other trying to outcompete each other and i'm trying to figure out who's the who's who's the enemy i have to fight today is it other people's opinion of me how do i you know look a certain way and act a certain way is it you know my inability to focus or actually in inability to or but really is is the the ease at which I get overwhelmed by multi-step tasks. Um, and then once I get overwhelmed by tasks that have multiple steps, I become avoidant and I run from it. That's really the main symptom of ADHD. Um, or is it my weight? And I got this message saying, oh, well, you know, if there's something wrong with you, what you do is you find a way to hide it from people, either with a pill or with, you know, what it would later become substance abuse. Um, and that really stuck with me that my, my job was to become acceptable to other people. My job was to become the version of myself that I thought other people needed me to be so that I wasn't at risk of being unacceptable. Uh, I, I really think that was a huge, huge struggle for me growing up. And you know, followed me into high school because we moved to a different city right before I started high school. We moved from Houston to Austin. And so I'm starting this, you know, high school is very big kind of Texas football high school. And I don't know anybody and they all know each other. And, uh, you know, I'm an awkward freshman and, you know, it was tough. I got bullied my freshman year and uh, took me a while to make friends. And at the time, my prescription from Ritalin had been changed to Adderall. And, you know, for those who don't know, most people probably do. Adderall is just another stimulant-based medication used to treat ADHD. Um, this stuff is amphetamines. That's what it is. It's medically pure amphetamine. 
Um, and that's why it works. Very effective, but it's, it's, th that's what the stuff is medically pure amphetamine. And, um, as soon as people found out that I was taking Adderall, all of a sudden those, those kids that I would try to avoid in the hallway, very quickly, they had their arms around my shoulder in the hallway. Yeah, all of a sudden I, I, I was, I was quickly making friends. I was quickly being invited to parties. I, there was this unbelievable shift from ninth grade to 10th grade where, you know, I went from being a kid that got rocks thrown at him to the kid that was getting invited to the party with the football players. And uh, it was not, <laughs> I, look, it was not even hidden for a second that the reason why I was getting invited was I was the kid with Adderall. And, you know, I was so, fine with it. Can I, uh, can I ask, mm -hmm. do you think you actually had ADHD? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I still, I still have it today. And do um, you think that the treatment was effective for you? No, no. Uh, I think Adderall is, an, is a very effective tool, um, because it allows you the opportunity to develop skills and tool and, and other lifestyle habits that you wouldn't, that would be very difficult to approach without the medication. The issue is that that was left off. It was just the medication rather than here's a medication. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend the next six months working with you. And I'm not saying I would have said yes to this. I probably would have been very upset about doing this, but just bear, bear with me on this. And what we're going to do is we're going to start working with you to develop, you know, study habits and distress tolerance and emotional regulation so that when you're approached, when you're confronted with any kind of work that has multiple tasks that need to be completed, deadlines are set and you have all these things you have to do, you have the ability to do it without experiencing the extreme overwhelm that creates that need to avoid, need to run, need to flee, like that anger that arises out of not being able to see the, the, there's a single step that needs to be taken rather than the entirety of the work, you know, workload. Um, and then what we're gonna do is we're gonna start to titrate your medication down and see how well those new lifestyle behaviors and tools hold without the medication. That would have been an effective treatment, but that's, that's not what happened and that's, I mean, look, I'm not saying that that's easy to do. Obviously that requires hours and hours and hours of work that requires lots of, uh, you know, financial investment or, you know, so it's not something that's easily accessible to, to most people. But, you know, like I said, I had the Adderall and people were inviting me to parties and it was obvious and I was fine with it. And I'll tell you why, because it made me feel special. It made me feel for the first time in a long time that I had something of value that other people wanted that no one could offer. No one else was able to offer to, this, to these groups of people at this party what I was able to offer. And it was like, here's our trade, man. You give us this and we give you access to the popular crowd. And it worked. I mean, <laughs> here's the thing. I remember taking Adderall as a recreational drug at a party for the first time. And it was like, boom. It was because I had never abused it. I didn't even know 
at the time that it was a, a party drug. I found this, I found this out. Um, and it was, it was, I was immediately hooked to what it did for me. It wasn't hooked to like the chemical hook of the drug story, the story of like the chemical hooks and drugs. And that's the addictive part. Uh, I was hooked to what it was doing for me. For the, I, it, was, it was as if all of the issues, the struggles in my life, the what had once been the most difficult puzzle to solve had been finally solved. Not only had it been finally solved, it had been solved with unbelievable ease and unbelievable repeatability. And that is incredibly attractive. If for the first time ever, I have I, I figure out how to have unbelievable confidence, how to have unbelievable and unstoppable energy, how to be able to accomplish any task put in hand with hyper focus, how to lose weight for the first time. Because I was an awkward freshman. I was like probably 30 pounds overweight. Well, like I said, Adderall is amphetamine. That's what the stuff is. So my metabolism goes to the roof. I'm not hungry at all. I, I can stay up all night. I'm the life of the party. I make the party more fun. People want to be around me. Uh, it gives me confidence. I can finally do my work without the overwhelm, without the anger. And to deliver it with such ease, it seems and feels so incredibly successful. And the thing is, is that people will say to you, well, you know, you better watch out because that's, that's going to be a problem. You don't know. You can't understand what it feels like to feel so broken and then with just this incredible convenience, feel so complete. You can't convince somebody that that's a bad decision because we are not gonna be able to attribute this to a 10 year story. When it's a decade away, we have the convenience. We think we have the convenience of, oh, in five years, then what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, I'm gonna let it go. But for now, I'm gonna take advantage. No one starts to abuse drugs and goes, well, this is where my life really turns around, you know, but sure enough, it feels like that. It really yeah. does. I mean, you're definitely living in the moment and it's immediate gratification and all of those things you were missing. Like, and were yeah. you still hiding this from your family? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it worked. I mean, I lost weight. I had unbelievable friendships. And like, I, you know, I developed like really great friendships, not just the, the people that invited me for the party for the drugs, but like unbelievable friendships, girlfriends. I got a scholarship to the college that I wanted to go to. I mean, like, here's the thing, not only did it work, but it was like, it was as if it, as long as I kept taking it, I was able to become the person I thought I always wanted to be. It, it was, it was this unbelievable uh, solution to this unsolvable problem that I've been fighting against my whole life. It was like, finally, all these adversaries, my body, my, you know, my ADHD, my social situation problems were gone. It, it was, it, it felt incredible. It, um, did any part of you think that it was wrong? No, no, because you know, and that wasn't until I got into college, but uh, in high school, it never really got out of hand. I was sure I was abusing it, but it was never like I wasn't ever drug seeking. 
Um, you know, if I ran out, I ran out, but you know, I wasn't, I was never really drug singing and hadn't really got to that point yet, but that's the thing, you know, eventually you get to the point to where more is not enough. And it's a very slight, very subtle, very imperceptible shift from going from where it's, you're just using it to where you can't not use it. And, um, that's what happened in college. And all of a sudden, all of the meaningful and loving bonds in your life that give you that meaningful experience of being alive, those really began to take second, third, fourth, fifth place to how much do I have? How long will it last? Where will I get more? How much will it cost? Where am I going to get the money to pay for it? Um, things like a loving and meaningful bond with yourself, both physically and, and emotionally that you want to show up and be present for. A loving and meaningful bond with a purpose beyond yourself within a community of shared respect that you want to show up and be present for every day. Meaningful and loving bond with people in your life that you want to share value with, that you want to show up and be present for every single day. And a loving and meaningful bond with a future that feels safe that you want to show up and be present for every single day. Those meaningful and loving connect bonds of connection that give us that mean that experience of being alive as a human. That began to sever. It was all about, I just need more. Um, I, I, everything became like, oh, I can't have those unless I have the drugs. And so I dropped out of college, uh, moved back to Austin. I started engaging in criminal drug behavior. Um, was doctor shopping, which is where you have multiple doctors prescribing the same medications without them knowing about it. It's a felony. I was forging prescriptions. I was um, buying and selling drugs on the street. Uh, I was scamming anybody I could and treating my family like absolute garbage. I mean, I, the only time I would ever really engage with my parents was to either get money from them or to get into some kind of fight and blame them for all the shit that was going wrong in my life. And, uh, you know, I was going through Adderall really quickly and there would be two weeks where I couldn't get any more. And I discovered that fast food was a phenomenal solution to not wanting to be present in your life. And that's really important to understand. You know, people think addiction is about a not, not wanting to stop using. They think that that's what it is. Oh, you just can't stop using because you're an addict. They think this whole thing about once an addict, always an addict. If I could remove any statement from the, from human uh, understanding would be that one. Um, what addiction really is, is a willingness to not want to be present in your life because for whatever reason or reasons, your life has become too painful a place to be. And it's a solution to not wanting to be present in your life. That's what it is. But people get the, they, they, what they confuse is dependency and addiction. People think that chemical dependency is addiction. Oh, we'll watch, we'll watch this. You know, you take, you know, let's say opiates long enough and then they take it away and you go through withdrawals. They'll say there, that withdrawal, that's proof that this person is an addict. And that's the reason why they can't stop using it because if they do, they're going to go through these painful withdrawals. But what we have to understand is that dependency is a biological adaptation to a substance. Addiction is a psychological adaptation to any behavior that allows you to escape your life. You've bonded with a behavior that allows you to escape the disconnection of your life.
So would you say fast foods were a drug for you? They became a substitute drug. Absolutely. I mean, I was eating 5,000 calories of fast food a day. Um, and I would do that for probably a week straight. And when I say I was struggling with substance abuse, um, the average prescription for Adderall is about 10 milligrams for every 24 hours. Uh, I was doing minimum of 450 and upwards of 1,000 milligrams a day, and I would do it for six days straight. Uh, there were days where I wouldn't sleep for four or five, six days. Um, I would enter, you know, drug-induced psychosis, uh, the early stages of drug-induced psychosis by like day four, where I'd start hallucinating, seeing and hearing things that weren't happening. Um, and I would end up having to take opiates in order to bring myself down so that I could go to sleep, wake up, binge on fast food for seven to 10 days, get more drugs and then start the whole process over again. And it was just, it was, I mean, like, it's so, it's so crazy for me now being so far removed from that, but you have to understand if, if you could, if people could just understand, like, imagine the pain that you've got to be in in order to behave in such a way so consistently, so repeatedly in full knowledge that your life is falling apart. There's no, not a single addict on the planet who thinks that what they're doing is working for them. The thing is that number one, we don't know, we honestly don't know how we let it get there. We don't know how we allowed it to get to that point. We don't know that it's okay that we don't know how we let it get to that point. We don't know it's okay to say to other people, hey, listen, I don't know how this happened and it's a mess and I'm scared and I feel alone and I don't know what to do. And so it's so difficult to let go of what was once the greatest solution you've ever found in your life. Even though you know it's become the most overwhelming and destructive problem you've ever faced. And to do it cloaked in stigma and, and covered in unbelievable pain, it's just, it's a very, very multi-layered and intense situation. And there's this, there's this tiny bit of hope that you have that, ah, man, I'm gonna fucking figure this out. I'm gonna get it back to where it was. If I just get enough, or if I just do this, it'll be just like it was when I first started. Like it has to, it worked. You don't know what it was like before I found this. You have no idea how good it felt when I figured it out. And I know it's gotten off track, but I'm gonna figure this out. You can't convince me this is wrong. That's just like psychosis that's going through your mind. You're so far removed from what your life once was, and what reality looks like, and your brain chemistry is fighting against you. Everything about your, your motivational circuitry is fighting against you because when you do anything that elicits a dopamine response that goes outside the bounds of the human experience, it feels incredibly biologically successful. That's the thing. People think dopamine is a bad thing to trigger. Dopamine is a phenomenal thing. Dopamine is a guidance system. It directs us towards behaviors that it believes has statistically increased our likelihood of survival in the long term. It's how we outcompeted environments of scarcity throughout the story of the human species. If we didn't have a guidance system that says, hey, the potatoes have more calories than that lettuce that we just found in the field, we wouldn't know in an environment where calories aren't guaranteed that the better decision is the potato or the better, that better decision is the nuts and not the kale. But thankfully we do have it 
we have a very powerful uh, guidance system and it gives us a feeling of success. It's a rewarding, successful feeling. And that's what dopamine does. But there's been this unbelievable shift in our environment over the last 100 years where now you have behaviors that can be done with unbelievable ease, unbelievable uh, repeatability, and unbelievable convenience. We get more for less. That's what dopamine helps us do. In environments of scarcity, if your psychology and your motivational system directs you to get more for less, you win. That same system is playing out right now. It's been crafted for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, perfected to work completely against the environment that we're living in. It's directing us towards behaviors that feel like they're the right thing to do when they're in fact they're not. And that's what's happening with drug, drug abuse. From a biological standpoint, there's a mechanism that says this feels like the best thing you're doing for your long-term health. And when it also solves emotional problems or hides emotional problems and allows you to escape pain, oh my gosh, what an amazing thing you've just done. And then when it becomes a problem, you have to face a world that doesn't look like they have the same problem and never had. And their response might look like, why can't you do this? Why can't you stop doing what none of us have ever had a problem with before? What must be so wrong with you that you can't do what the majority of people in the culture seem to have no problem with whatsoever? How messed up must you be? And that's really where, you know, you really get into this real big problem of, of being afraid to talk to people. Yeah. And that is a big problem. And I think just simply by sharing this story, your story, it should show some people out there that are feeling the same things that they are absolutely not alone. And that, you know, it, it's not that it's normal or not normal, but that it just exists. Other people have these feelings and have been able to survive. Well, the thing is, it's like, instead of thinking of it as pathology, why does, why don't we think about it? Why doesn't, instead of, you know, why is it happening? You know, is there pathology behind it? Why does it make sense that it's happening to this person? Why does it make sense that they would do this thing? Because people, we don't behave in such irrational ways as people would like to think. It's a story that they're creating to explain why they don't understand why someone is doing something. Oh, there must be something wrong with them. I don't do that. What right. must be wrong with that person? Because they can't stop doing what I would, I would never do that. And so they create a story and that's where like, oh, it's got to be pathology. It's got to be something in their, you know, right. whatever. But, you know, it, it, go ahead. In, in your story, you know, here you go from being the life of the party and everything's working mm. for you and you solved a problem and you feel empowered. You feel yeah. confident. You feel good about yourself. And, you know, that was a path from at a very young age, not feeling so good about yourself. So you solved yeah. it, but then it went out of control. And it got and worse way, than it had ever been. And, and, and to a point where you closed off. And at some point, did you hit a tipping point? Yeah. So, you know, funny enough, in 2010, uh, our mutual friend, Rip Esselstyn, had just started hosting uh, these seven-day retreats with Whole Foods Market. Uh, these seven-day plant-strong retreats. They're seven-day immersion retreats to help people adopt a plant-based diet to help reverse disease and lose weight and take charge of their life. And I was offered an opportunity to attend uh, one in 2010. My dad, uh, being a part of the, the founding of Whole Foods Market, um, and uh, ha had come to me and, you know, look, 
my dad and I were not talking then. Um, I, I, uh, it's one of the biggest regrets of my life is how much I hated him. And, um, you know, uh, he had every reason to just say, yeah, fuck you. I'm done. You know, I've tried. I'm done. I'm not taking this from you anymore. I'm not letting you, you know, say these things to me and your mom. I'm not, you know, going to keep bailing you out. I'm not going to do this. You know, you're on your own. He could have done that, but he never did. And he got me an opportunity. He wanted me to go. And I'm going to tell you right now, I can remember my dad took me to the Whole Foods headquarters and, and got to meet Rip and talk to him before. Rip wanted to meet me and, and all that. And I sort of put on a bullshit show for Rip and uh, just to like, you know, impress my dad. And, you know, I didn't know who Rip was. I didn't give a shit. I didn't want to know what he had to say. I didn't care about it. What I knew was that if I went, I could more than likely convince my dad to keep giving me money. And that was, that was the entire motivation for me going. And, you know, I was over 300 pounds at the time. Um, I show up high. Uh, I've got drugs in my, on, in my bag. Um, and, uh, of course, I convinced my dad to, like, pay extra to get me a, a private room. I told him it was because, you know, I didn't feel comfortable with other people. But come on. And uh, I was high the whole time. Uh, I was, my face was always flushed red. I was diaphoretic. I was sweat through like two shirts a day. I, you know, at the time I wasn't showering for like months. I smelled toxic. And, you know, the fact is like, apparently my appearance, my everything about me was such a disruption, distraction to the staff and some of the participants. There were meetings to determine whether they wanted to kick me out. Um, they didn't. And you know, it's funny, I went to every every single lecture. I sat in the back of the room. I didn't sit next to anybody. I never really talked to anybody. I listened to everything that was being said. I learned all the knowledge that I now employ in my life. I learned about plant-based nutrition. I learned about disease causation, disease reversal, you know, the, the, just the surface level. But, you know, I learned. Um, and I, and I, it, when I was there, they had a personal trainer. His name is Jean-Pierre. John Pierre is a famous personal trainer. He trained Ellen. He trains a lot of, you know, uh, like uh, Emily Deschanel, like all these other people. Um, and he's a vegan activist. And he had, he had me watch the movie Earthlings when I was there. I'd never seen it before. I couldn't get through it. Um, and it spoke to a deep core value in mind that I shared from my grandmother, which is a love for the natural world. And in fact, there was a speaker there the last night. His name was Dick Beardsley. Dick Beardsley is a famous marathoner um, who had suffered a series of really traumatic near-fatal accidents after his running career on his family farm where he got like cotton machinery and he got addicted to opiates uh, as a result of using them as painkillers. But then, you know, he wasn't able to really get back into his life because he had all these horrible injuries and he felt like this lack of purpose and lack of uh, ability to be present with the things that gave him meaning. So great way to escape that pain is to continue using opiates. They're a phenomenal solution. I heard this guy talk about himself and it was talked about doctor shopping. He talked about forging prescriptions, talked about stealing from people. And he talked about how he treated people and moved through the world. I was like, man, that dude might as well be talking about me. You know, if there's anybody who I can go up to and honestly say for the first time out loud, hey, look, you know, I think I have a problem with drugs and I'm really scared and know that they're not for a second going to judge me. It's going to be this guy. 
And I, oh man, I was like, I, I can remember waiting next to his table. He was signing his book. Um, and I wanted to go up and talk to him, but it was like my feet were like glued to the floor. Like I just couldn't take a step further. And I, I, I was probably 10 feet from him. So I waited till like, like the last few people there. And I thought, you know, why don't you just start talking to the guy and maybe you'll work up the courage. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. I was, I was just afraid. I was afraid that I wasn't willing to give up what was allowing me to escape a life. It was too painful a place to be um, on the gamble that this thing would work, you know? And that's really where, where it comes down to, you know, people say, well, why, if you know that recovery is possible, if you know that like all these things are out there, why don't you do it? Because you have to give up the one thing that makes your life bearable on the gamble that this thing that people are saying will actually work for you. And a lot of people have to do it alone. A lot of people have have get a family that says, you either do this or we won't see you anymore, which is kind of like the last straw. It's like the worst thing you can do to an addict is take that last lingering thread of connection and then sever it and threaten it and say, if you don't do this, we'll never talk to you again. Uh, instead of saying, hey, we love you, whether you're using or you're not, we can't condone your behavior, but we want you to know you will help you. And when you're done, we're here for you. Whether you relapse, whatever, that's what they really should be saying. And I just couldn't do it. Um, and then two years later, you know, things got worse. I kept gaining weight. Um, I was broke. Uh, my dad had cut me off financially, not, not personally, but financially. Um, and I was like two weeks from being homeless. And, um, you know, I, I, I knew that it, I wasn't gonna be able to go to my dad and say, I need to move in. I couldn't do that. And I knew I didn't have, an, have it to make it on the streets. I mean, like I was a sheltered kid my whole life. I wasn't gonna be able to do that. Um, and living hurt, living hurt physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And I didn't have any plans, you know? I mean, I'd, I'd thought about death for a while. I thought about just not being around and um, like the relief that that would be to not just have to deal with the pain of living. Um, but I, I didn't, you know, I hadn't like said, okay, here, you know, I'm gonna end my life. I'm gonna do this, do it this way. And I'm gonna leave a note or anything like that. But, you know, when you're living in the full belief that it's the worst it's ever been and in full confidence that tomorrow will be worse. Eventually, tomorrow is just not something you want to try. And on August 21st of 2012, uh, I was 30 years old. I already had erectile dysfunction for reasons I didn't understand. I just thought, again, I'm just a, there's another example of how broken I am. Um, I had uh, infected cuts on my legs from scratching mosquito bites that wouldn't heal for reasons I didn't know at the time. And um, I just couldn't do it anymore. And uh, I, I tried to end my life by suicide. I grabbed a handful of pills. They were sitting on the coffee table in front of me and I just swallowed as many as I could. And, um, you know, overdose wasn't something I was new to. Um, I had uh, been on the verge of multiple overdoses before, but this, this felt distinctly different. And I can remember uh, 
feeling very, very like my heart rate was rushing and then it would, then it would drop and then it would rush and then go up and down and up and down. I felt very faint and I tried to stand up and my entire right side of my body cramped. And it felt like I got stabbed with a hot knife in my right side. And then uh, black starts to fade in from my periphery. And, I, you know, I'm going to tell you that uh, the, the feeling of, uh, of, of dying, and I don't, I don't mean the physical uh, feeling that I just described, but, um, you know, I was, I was certain that that was the last moment of my life. Um, and to, uh, to have that happen alone in, in a filthy hoarder like apartment, completely separated from everyone and everything you've ever loved, not because they didn't want to be there for me, but because I made it my job to make sure that they couldn't be. Yeah. It's the most terrifying experience I've ever had. And, um, uh, I woke up hours later in a puddle of my own vomit in a pile of fast food garbage surrounded by empty pill bottles. And I was overcome with unbelievable amounts of relief. And I'm going to tell you that, uh, you know, a lot of people say that the minute they, they try to suicide, that, that they just, they immediately regret it. I didn't really have that experience. I, I was really afraid. Um, but I was overwhelmed by relief after, you know, a good amount of time on the floor trying to decide if I should go to the hospital, what I ended up doing. I went to an urgent care center. Um, but before, you know, before I left, I just, I was just, it was relief like I'd never experienced before. And it really, it really struck me because, you know, like most people, uh, I believe that what I was trying to do was end my life. And that relief would only be there if there was something about my life that I loved enough, something about myself possibly that I loved enough that I would, that, that even though I knew today was going to be harder than the day before, I still wanted to be a part of it all. I was glad that I was still alive. And that really calls into question what people believe about suicide. People think suicide is someone trying to end their life. Suicide is someone trying to end their pain. That's what it is. People who suicide didn't want to die. They just didn't want to be in pain anymore. They, didn't, they, they had exhausted every effort. They tried their best and every time they, they tried, it was an utter failure and and then they, they get these messages from people that you're a fuck up or, you know, you can't get your life together. And it's not that they don't want to. Uh, it's, it's, it's literally, it's like, is it, it's as if they've forgotten how to do anything other than use. Because everything else is painful and everything else is just an example of how far they've gone, how far they've fallen. And believe me, like, listen, I was that guy. And we all know that guy. I was that guy that if you knew me, if you were a friend and you loved me, or if you were a family member and you loved me, you probably came up to me at some point and said, hey, what the fuck are you doing? What are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? Don't you see the pain that you're causing? Don't you see that what's happening to you, what's happening to your life, what you're doing to your family, what you're doing to your friends, what you're doing to me? Like, don't you see what you're doing? Like, why are you doing this? And I would have looked you dead in the eye and I would have said, fuck you. This is how I live my life. 
you don't know what it's like. You don't know how painful shit is for me. And you don't know the relief that this substance gives me. So if this shit costs me five years, fine. And like, I think back on it, I'm like, man, fuck. Five years? You know, throw that number out like it's nothing. Fuck it, you know, here. I think about my family, I think about my mom and my dad, my twin brother and my little sister. It's like, shit. If I had successfully suicided on August 21st of 2012, what would they not do for five days with me? What would you, I mean, five hours would be huge. I mean, think about it. For everybody here listening, for those people that you've loved the most who are no longer with you, what would you not do for five extra minutes with them? You know, the things that we, that we choose to believe about ourselves have consequences on us and the people that we care about. And I decided to pick up the phone and I called my parents and I asked for help. Um, and I checked into rehab about two weeks later. I was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, erectile dysfunction, drug-induced or chemical-induced uh, bipolar disorder, suicidal depression, anxiety disorder, sleep disorder, attention deficit disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And I was put on a cabin, uh, cabinet's worth of medication for life. I was throwing all these labels and, you know, it was, it was, I was a cliche. I mean, really, um, I walked into rehab high before I went to my parents' house after surviving that suicide, I used before I left. And, um, you know, I, I really walked into rehab being like, I'm going to get 30 days away from this thing and then I'll have it under control again. That's, that's the plan. Um, and thankfully I was so sick that if I wasn't willing to change everything about the way that I moved through the world and I wasn't guaranteed five years sober or not, it really helped me to understand that recovery can't just be about abstinence, that it can't just be about not using it can't be passive sobriety. I have to actively be engaged in reconnecting myself to those meaningful bonds in life. And um, I was terrified. I was terrified by all the diagnoses I've been given. I was terrified by how scared the doctors were. My diabetes was very advanced. My blood pressure was like 210 over 130. Um, I would wake up with like a heart resting heart rate of 115. And um, you know, I was just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't understand the psychology part of it. I didn't understand addiction at that time. Um, and I, I called my dad, in fact, and told him I was leaving. I told him, I was like, you know what? I can't do this. Like, I'm, I don't want to do this. I thought all I had to do was get off drugs. Now they're trying to tell me I have all these psychological conditions and I, I don't, I don't want to do this and, I, I, and I'm, I'm leaving. And, you know, he heard how scared I was and he helped me, you know, think back. He goes, no, listen, Adam, look, I don't know about all the psychological stuff they're talking about. I don't know. I don't know. But what I do know is that a lot of these health things you're talking about can be reversed. And you know how to do that. You know, you remember what Rip Esselstyn and, and, and their whole team taught you. And, you know, let me tell you, Adam, if there's something about your life that you don't like or that's painful and you can do something about it, then it's not a problem. Also, if there's something about your life that's painful, or that you don't like, and you can't do anything about it, 
it's also not a problem because that means it's just the way things are. And so maybe if we just learn to look at them differently, you and your care team and your mom and I, we can figure this thing out. And that really, in that moment, my dad really stopped being my adversary for me. He'd never, I'd never been his adversary, but he had been mine and he became my ally. Um, he helped me see that, you know, yeah, sure. I was, I was responsible for a lot of the behavior. Maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't my fault that I had fallen into this situation. I didn't know. I couldn't really play it out over the long term. I, it wasn't my fault. I hadn't intended on this, but it was my responsibility. I take responsibility for the behaviors. Uh, you know, it's, if I was the cause, I'm, I'm, I get to be the solution. I didn't have to wait for anybody. I didn't have to wait for anything. You know, I wasn't dependent upon someone or something else for my diabetes to go away. That was, that was my decision to take charge of. So I said, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the diet thing. And I'm going to build my foundation of my recovery around it, right? I'm going to create this very specific and very clear priorities and values that I want to live by. And what that is, is I want to move in the direction of health. And so I'm going to build my caloric environment to match that goal. And so that meant eating a plant-based diet. Well, just so you know, the only greens I ate up until then were the occasional piece of lettuce they didn't take off my burger at McDonald's. So I didn't really know what to eat. And I moved out of rehab. They wouldn't let me change my diet in rehab. But when I moved into a sober living facility 37 days after, or after 37 days in rehab, I moved straight into a sober living facility. It was, I had the opportunity to change my diet. I would go to the house manager. The way it works is you go to the house manager and you, you write on the list the foods that you want, and then they buy it. So I walked up to the house manager whose last name was Hamburger. And uh, I told him, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I told him, uh, I told him, you know, here's what I want. Um, and, and I remember staying up that night and be like, I got to figure this out. Uh, what do I like for breakfast? All right. I like oatmeal. Great. We'll get microwavable oatmeal. Well, what am I going to do? I don't remember anything about the engine two diet. I just remember a lot of rice and beans. Okay. Microwavable rice, canned beans. Perfect. Frozen veggie mix. There's vegetables in this diet. Let's do that. And, and that's, that would be my bowl for lunch. And then, I can't think of dinner. We'll do the same thing that I did for lunch for dinner. Great. Day one. And I, then I'm like, I'm like, man, I got six more days to plan. I was like, okay, day one repeated for seven days. I'll just do that <laughs> for seven days straight and I'll snack on fruit. That's what I did. And, you know, I got up in the morning and, um, and just so you know, I'll let you know, we, we can go longer. So it's, it's okay. Awesome. awesome. Um, I get up in the morning, I walk to the pantry and I opened it up and it was like a cosmic joke because for whatever reason, the oatmeal got put next to Fruity Pebbles, Fruity Pebbles cereal. And if you know me, if you grew up around me, you would have known that that's the best cereal that has ever been invented in human history. Sorry, Rip, <laughs> Fruity Pebbles is the best tasting cereal in the history of the world. As great as Rip's Big Bowl is, <laughs> right. Fruity Pebbles is the best tasting cereal in human history. Uh, and I just remember like being so angry, not that they put it there, that it was a struggle for me not to choose 3D Pebbles. This is what bothered me. I didn't understand why. If I knew that there was a consequence to each decision, right? If I was in full understanding that if I chose the Fruity Pebbles, it would continue to fuel the conditions I was trying to reverse. Also, if I knew that if I chose the oatmeal, it was going to empower me to start to 
reverse those conditions while also giving me the ability to reconnect to that self-efficacy, that ability to change my life for the better. Why in the name of God would I not want to choose the oats? Like, why in the world was this not an intel, a, 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 a matter of intellect and will? I know what I want to do. I know how to do it. That's what I'm going to do. Like, why was this such a difficult thing to do that like, on the first few days I was crying that I, I had to not pick the fruity pebbles? And that's when I, you know, went back and, and I, I, I Google searched uh, some stuff and came across a TED talk by a guy named Doug Lyle, Dr. Doug Lyle, who's an evolutionary psychologist. He gave a TED talk called The Pleasure Trap. And what he explains in The tra Pleasure Trap is if we know what to do to be happy and healthy, why is it so difficult to do it? And it comes back to that dopamine mechanism that I described, the guidance system, that this is a, a something that has been crafted over thousands of years to direct us towards any decision that gives us a higher dopamine response because that our body perceives that decision as being biologically beneficial for our long-term health, right? And all of this shame was lifted from me because see, I thought that I was having trouble with this decision because I was weak or I didn't have enough willpower. What I understood and what I understand now is that the reason why it was difficult was because my body was doing exactly what it was supposed to do. It had a very clear knowing of the dopamine response that comes from fruity pebbles and a very clear knowing of the dopamine response that comes from oats. And it knows that it's about three times as many calories per bite in the fruity pebbles. So my body looks at the fruity pebbles and goes, that's the right thing to do. Repeat that decision. That's phenomenal. Nothing like that has ever existed in the course of human history. Holy shit, what a gold mine did you come across? Not only is there three times as many calories per bite, all you got to do is open this box and pour it in a bowl. It costs you like zero energy. This is unbelievable. Do that. What I understood was in order to be successful, I simply had to be comfortable being uncomfortable. I had to do that in order to choose the healthy choice long enough so that my dopamine receptors could regain sensitivity and then the oats aren't a chore. And then eventually I look forward to them. And that's really a big thing. Like why, when you hear that all the time, you got to identify your why. Why would I want to do that? people would look at me and they go, oh, well, it's obvious. He's 350 pounds. He has type two diabetes. He has heart disease. He nearly died. That's his motivation. It has to be. Well, it's not. Negative consequences do not motivate change. They don't. I'm going to tell you why. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about their diabetes. Nobody cares about their heart disease. Nobody cares about their obesity. What they care about is what it threatens to take from them, right? It's the loving and meaningful bonds in your life that are threatened. That's why you do something. That's why we do what we do. That's why we do what we already do. It's why we learn to do things better. It's why we learn to do new things so that we can be more fully present with those loving and meaningful bonds in our life that mean the world to us. That's your why. That's your motivation. Think about it. It's usually rooted in love. I'll give you a, 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 a simple example. Your son or daughter or, or whomever uh, is nine years old and they want to start skateboarding. And uh, you see them outside and, and they're not wearing their helmet and they're not wearing their pads. And you go outside and you start yelling at them. You get really mad. Don't do What are you doing? Like, you're grounded. You just get angry. And someone would say, why are you doing that? What's your why? Why would you be so motivated to get that angry? And they go, 
Well, he, I don't, he, he's not wearing his, not wearing his helmet. He's not wearing his pads. Okay. Why does that bother you? Because I don't want him to get hurt. Well, of course you don't. No one wants their kid to get hurt. Why don't you want him to get hurt? I don't want to see him in the hospital. Well, of course not. No one wants to see their son or daughter in the hospital. Why don't you want to see them in the hospital? Because I love them and I don't want, I, I, I love them. Well, that's your why. That's why you got angry. Because the loving and meaningful bond that you have with your child was threatened by them not wearing the helmet, not wearing the pads. The loving and meaningful bonds in my life are being threatened by these diseases. So it's the meaningful bonds. That's my motivation. And, uh, you know, over the next four months, I completely reversed my diabetes, my heart disease, and my erectile dysfunction. Uh, within 10 months, I lost over 100 pounds. And within a year, I was off of all every single medication I was put on in rehab, all the antidepressants, mood stabilizers, sleeping medications, anxiety medications, all of it. Um, and uh you know it's it's been it's been quite a quite a thing uh what a vehicle food has been for me um to reconnect me to to what it's like to to be alive to be human to see how unbroken we actually are to see that things usually make sense they're happening for a reason and i'll give you an example about month four my i was off my medication for diabetes and I'll get up every day and I'll go see my therapist and I'll be like, look, man, I don't understand what's happening here. He's like, what? He's like, well, you know, here I am. I'm incredibly successful with my food. Um, but yet I still have temptations and cravings for drugs and food every single day. And, and I get angry about it. And I have anxiety and I don't know why I'm still failing at these things. And he said, you know, Adam, that's a, that's an interesting question. Um, do you think it's possible to be alive and not experience any of those things and this is like this awakening moment where i was like no wait a minute hang on a second is it actually possible to be alive and never feel fear anxiety anger temptations cravings urges no not possible is it possible to be alive experience those things and see them as reasonable and meaningful and valid and equally meaningful reasonable and valid as the quote unquote positive emotions that we have, joy, excitement, pleasure. Absolutely. That's a reasonable thing. See, I thought those feelings were indications of failure because somebody or something had got me to believe that story. That, you know, if you're angry, you gotta fix it. If you're anxious, you gotta fix it. It's a problem, fix it. Rather than why does it make sense? Why is it reasonable that right now you'd be anxious? Why is it okay that that's a signal that's arising in you? Why is it reasonable that you're tempted? Well, I've pretty much eaten a standard American diet for 30 straight years. And now I've been eating this very different diet for four months. I think it's a pretty reasonable thing to have cravings for cheeseburgers. It would be kind of weird if I didn't. You know, food gave me the permission to explore that. Um, and then I looked at, you know, what I had done and uh, people would say, wow, man, you're so disciplined. How did you do that? How did you, how did you have so much self-discipline, self-control? It's like, no, no, I didn't. I didn't, I cultivated an environment that was incredibly disciplined and incredibly controlled. People think that you have to be more disciplined or you have to be more self-controlled or more willful. You need a more disciplined environment. Your discipline will always be better if your environment doesn't require you to depend on it. I very purposefully, very purposefully and meticulously cultivated an environment where it was easy for me to do the right thing. It was as convenient for me to act in my new behaviors as it had been in the old one. 
if it wasn't as convenient, if it took more time and more energy to do the new behavior, I would do the old more often than I wanted. I was very, very honest about that with myself. I made it so simple that it was nearly impossible to fail. I knew exactly what I was going to eat, when I was going to eat, how to make it, and then I could do it in less than five minutes. That was my plan. Make it so damn simple, so repeatable, so obvious, so convenient that it was as easy to be successful as it had been to do the old. And uh, I looked at my, you know, my life in terms of my emotional health, and I, I sort of constructed a, a belief system around the, th the same thing. Like, why does it make sense that I was able to be disciplined in this way? Because I made it easy to do that made it easy. I made it obvious. How am I going to do that with my emotional health? Well, if I get angry, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it easy for me to be angry. I'm going to start to investigate why does it make sense rather than why is it, you know, a problem. And I did that under the care of a lot of therapy and everything like that. But I think food was the vehicle to help me do that. And uh, I've been sober now for over nine years. Um, I've, uh, founded a nonprofit called Plant Based for Positive Change that actually just finished leading the very first controlled trial investigating the effects of nutrition on early addiction recovery outcomes. It's phenomenal. Um, and uh, we're publishing four manuscripts. They'll be published next year. So we're really excited. Doctors Dean and Aisha Shurzai are the MDs on the study. Tara Kemp is the lead investigator. I got a microbiome specialist, young guy named Dr. Frank Cusimano. And it's pretty remarkable what we're finding. It's, it's, it's really, really something. Um, and uh, we're excited to uh, to be publishing and work on that. So it's been pretty amazing. Adam, okay. This is just such a incredible journey. And here's what I feel right now. I feel grateful. I yeah. feel grateful that you woke up that day. Yeah, I feel too. grateful that you got yourself over to urgent care. Mm -hmm. I feel grateful that you were able to reach out to your family who you had alienated and made to believe that you didn't want anything to do with them, but you were able yeah. to do that. Yeah. I feel grateful that they helped you move forward. I mean, I, it's like a ripple effect of gratitude and, you know, I feel grateful that the freaking fruity pebbles were in there next to the oatmeal because it made you really dig deep and have to investigate why you're doing what you do. And by yeah. doing that, you've created such a greater force in this world that's doing good for other people. It's one thing to overcome an addiction or, or find recovery, which is potentially something that those of us suffer with. We're, we're in forever, right? It's mm -hmm. just a part of, of life. But it's another thing to take it forward and want to help other people. So I'm yeah. grateful for Thanks. all of that. Thank you. Appreciate that very much. Yeah, you know, it's 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 a tough thing. Um, and I t the way that the story is told in, in, in the hour and a half that we tell it, uh, it seems like, oh, I'm, he, he's such a strong person. You know, he he did it all. And look, at he did this whole thing himself. It's like he that's not an accurate statement. You know, I, I was surrounded by love and acceptance, which is a rare thing. Most people aren't gifted with the, the privilege of having people that, are, that don't give up on them. Um, and, and I'm in full recognition of the privilege that, that I, that I, that I live in, in, in order to be where I am today in terms of my recovery. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, You know, I've seen recovery not work for people, uh, unfortunately. Um, 
I've lost uh, six very, very close friends um, to suicide and overdose since getting sober, who I was getting sober with. Um, and um, and then two other people who were friends of mine, not, not as close, but they were still friends of mine. And, um, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's, there's messaging out there that is so damaging to people. Um, when someone goes for help, modern response from psychology or from the addiction recovery will say, oh, well, here's the thing. The reason you're depressed is because there's this chemical imbalance, a lack of serotonin. Or, and what we need to do is we need to put you on medication in order to correct that. And then everything will be fine. And we, you know, obviously we need to like uncover some stuff, but really it's this, we got to correct this chemical imbalance. And I'm all for medication. Medication helped me save my life. But here's the problem with that story. Here's the problem with the story that when someone checks into treatment, they say, I can't stop using. And they say, well, that's because you're an addict. Right? That's just how your brain is wired. And you know, once an addict, always an addict. When, when someone hears that, either one of those stories, it tells them that their pain means nothing. And that is terrifying. Because what it means is that it's not just an insult to pain. It's an insult to the things in their life that they love. Because the reason they're in pain is because something meaningful and something loving has been severed from their life. Something valuable to them, something that means the world to them has been severed from their life and they don't know why, they don't know how, they can't get back to it. And to escape the pain of it and the shame and the sadness they use. And when someone tells them, no, that's not why you're using, you're using because you're an addict, it invalidates their pain and it invalidates their love. And that's dangerous. And I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the story that everybody in recovery gets because there's some great people out there, but that's the vast majority of people. That's the story you're going to hear. And then not only that, then they're told the story that you know, abstinence is the key. And I'm a huge fan of abstinence. I think abstinence is necessary, certainly within the first year of recovery. But there's this idea that abstinence is the is the metric upon which your success is is determined, right? That. Oh, you know, you're only as sober as how many days you have, right? You're only as sober as you are today. But, you know, if you slip up, those days get reset, you lose it. It's proof that your 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 recovery wasn't strong enough. Here's why I don't like that. Imagine someone who's been struggling with alcoholism for 10 years. When they get into recovery, they've got a year in recovery. I mean, they're, they're not using, they're also actively engaging in behaviors that are, you know, uh, that require effort for them to take charge of their life instead of just not using. You got 365 days and then something happens. Something really tough happens and it challenges the recovery to levels yet tested. Next thing they know, they find themselves at a bar. They're in unbelievable grief. They're in unbelievable pain. And what does their body do? It triggers a, a response that they've used for 10 years before this and they get themselves to a bar. They know the solution that this drink has and they take a sip they maybe they drink the whole glass and they push it away the bartender comes up and goes you want another and they go hang on a second no no i don't want i don't want another one that's not what i want this isn't what i want to do uh i'm gonna i'm gonna go now the traditional recovery model would say that's an indication of their recovery failing that in my opinion is an indication of their recovery winning that is an unbelievable statement that they've just made uh, 
where before they would have been two bottles deep. They got through one glass and they said, hey, no, no, unbelievable awareness of the decision that they just made and that that's not how they want to move. And they corrected themselves and they got back on the direction they want to go. And then they went back to a meeting and they said, you know, I use and I'm here. I still want to be in active recovery. And then they take their days from them. What this says to somebody is this. That it removes the context from the human story and humans are, are story creatures. We live within context. So in any amount and for any reason, it's equally a failure. It's a really destructive message to tell people. Humans are imperfect creatures, right? So we can't expect to feel safe if anything less than perfect is always equally a failure. No matter what, doesn't matter. Context is gone. So I think we need to look at how we, how we, how, what, what we, how we define recovery, how we define sobriety, how we define you know, what's going on, what's going on in terms of the treatment centers and the, the, the modern view of addiction, uh, the cause of addiction and, and what's going on doesn't meet the real world observations of some amazing people. One of, the, one of my favorite authors, the British journalist named Johan Hari wrote a book called Lost Connections, best book on, uh, on mental health I've ever read in my life. And it's phenomenal. And, uh, and I, I just, you know, to all my friends uh, that, that, that I, you know, that have passed away and to everyone, you know, listening, if, if you know somebody um, who's suffering, like my friends were, like I was, if you know someone, and we, I think we all do, you don't need to know what to say. You don't need to have answers. People who are struggling with this kind of pain they don't want answers as much as they want to know they've not been forgotten by the world. They want to know that they've not been forgotten by the people that matter the most to them. They want to know that there's somebody who will come and sit with them when sitting with their, themselves has become too painful. What you want to do is you want to call these people. You don't have to invite them back into your life if it's, if it's dangerous, but you can call them and you can say to them, I love you. I love you whether you're using or you're not. I love you whatever state you're in. And if you ever need me, I'll listen to you. Because I don't want you to be alone or feel alone. That is a huge statement to somebody who feels like they have they don't have the right to be around people anymore. Um, it, it could be exactly the thing they need to hear to ask you for help. So uh, that's, what, that, that's what I like to tell people. Just try not to fix the problem. Try, try to remind people that they matter, that they're valuable. You just answered my final question for you. <laughs> You're so good. You just know exactly, exactly where to go with this and, and what mm. to share with the outside world because you've lived it. You know, um, I actually end every one of my Run This World podcasts with asking every guest for their final nugget. So you're going to have yeah. to come up with another one. Oh, no Some worries. little gem, yeah. yeah, that yeah. will so help. One, yeah. So I, I had a close friend named David Clark. Uh, maybe you knew him. He was an ultra runner okay. um, who uh, was in recovery from alcoholism, and he was over 300 pounds at one point, and became one of the top ultra runners. You know, completed Badwater I don't know how many times, and uh, just one of the most wonderful humans I've ever known in my life. He he died from complications to. Uh, he got um, compartment syndrome from rhabdo, 
rhabdomyalgia, which is something that happens when your muscle tissue breaks down too much, um, is really unfortunate. I miss him. He was one of my closest friends. Uh, just an unbelievable recovery warrior. Um, but he had a saying, and it's the best, one of the best things I've ever heard. Um, you know, we all, we've all heard the story. We've all heard people say, you know, if you really want to be happy, you should live like it's the last day of your life. We've all heard that. Um, and it doesn't really work. David Clark would tell you that that doesn't really work. If you're living like the last day of your life, you wouldn't do the things that you need to do. You wouldn't be going to the gym. You wouldn't be going to work. You wouldn't be doing all those other things. If you really want to be happy, try treating everyone else as if they were living the last day of theirs. Imagine what you would allow of people. Imagine the permission you would give people to be wrong, to not have to, to not force people to have to say everything just the right way or do everything just the right way or show up just the right way. Imagine the permission you would give people to be their full self and make mistakes and love them anyways. And uh, I just love that. I love the redirect on that. I think it's wonderful. It really is. Well, guess what? Right now I'm, I'm acting as if you're living your last day and maybe you can act as if I am too. So that's all the love that I'm giving you right now. Appreciate it. (laughs) Adam, thank you so much for sharing your story today. It's powerful and poignant and real, and I believe it can help people. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It's been a pleasure. When someone dies by suicide, it is common for the survivors to erase that part of their journey and not talk about how their loved one died. When this happens, it perpetuates the stigma around suicide, which makes it harder for people to reach out when they need help. Steve Tarpinian died by suicide in 2015, but he also left a beautiful legacy of love and support to many people. By sharing a story and talking openly about suicide, it is our goal to help people who are struggling reach out for the help they need before it is too late. And by offering a glimpse into the perspectives of those who are touched by suicide, we hope to help those who are struggling with suicide or are suicide loss survivors. Please remember, you are not alone. If you or someone you know is displaying suicide warning signs, please call the Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800 273 8255. Thank you for listening. Please share this podcast. You never know who might need to hear it right now.